Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Natasha Schul, who's a cultural anthropologist. Uh, she's an associate professor at uh, NYU in the department of, let me get this right, uh, culture? No. No, it's communications culture. <laughs> no. It's media, culture, and communication. It that's used right. to be media and communication, then they, they slotted culture in there, and I guess I can, that's where I come in. As I can only imagine how many heated faculty discussions there were about the order of those words. So many, but I wasn't there for those. <laughs> and she's also probably most importantly the, the author of the book uh, Addiction by Design, which is a study of uh, slot machines and uh, the, the technology of Vegas. And she's got a new book coming up very shortly as well, uh, which is called Keeping Track. Mm-hmm. And we're in Soho today in a secret undisclosed location, given that we don't want the other scungy freelancers to know about it. We're keeping it under wraps. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Natasha, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I I was really intrigued by all your work as myself and often a lot of this audience are very interested in technology. And I think what I hadn't fully appreciated was just how much diabolical psychology underlies the design of everyday things around us. So maybe let's start with addiction. Tell me a little bit of how addiction works. Okay, but let's start maybe first with, with the, di- what did you call it? Diabolical sorcery or something? Uh, yeah, I can't even remember anything I say. <laughs> diabolical I engineering. <laughs> well, just just to from the get-go, I always emphasize that, is it really that sinister or diabolical, or is it actually really straightforward that the makers of slot machines or any consumer pro- product or Candy Crush are really just trying to increase the bottom line. And so there's not a lot of psychology, for instance, in in Vegas uh, design labs for slot machine. You know, I went into this project years ago thinking I'd find psychology textbooks or B.F. Skinner packed in the side drawer (laughs) of these engineers. Or or a guy in a gray safari suit with a white cat. Right, it's the stuff like that. And actually, when I would ask those kinds of questions, like, why do you choose purple so much as a color? Or, you know, why this and not that? They'd say, oh, I don't know, we, we chose that sound because we just listened till we liked the ding. You know, it doesn't really matter. We don't care why. What they, you know, the, the Las Vegas uh, casino floors are basically like a big laboratory. Yeah. They put stuff out and what sticks rises to the top, just like McDonald's. He counted, uh, you know, what which line was longest and made that burger. So there isn't actually a lot of probing psychology behind it. You can certainly come on the heels of this technology and then interpret what's going on psychologically. Right. But no one's sitting around in boardrooms saying, how can we addict people? They're sitting around in boardrooms <laughs> saying, how can we make more money? Right. I actually find that more disturbing and problematic because it's harder to kind of you know you can't expose it and oust it it is the the way that but there's no philosophy there right no. it's it's just about i mean there the, is it's the free market philosophy right. and it's a b testing you know right. this, this exactly. either advances us towards our goal or it doesn't yeah uh but how do you know at, at an individual level and when they when when, when somebody is completely mesmerized by a slot machine right what's going on so 
the technology is really important, and the gambling industry loves to, to emphasize, um, you know, just like alcoholics don't come in bottles, uh, gambling addicts don't come in slot machines, you know, you can't, the machinery doesn't matter. If they weren't doing this, they'd be doing something else. And they love to hammer that and throw money at right. genetic research and this manner of thing. And I kind of counter gun, gun, that. Like, it's like the NRA, right? The guns don't kill people. People kill people. Exactly. That's an especially heated one, so I didn't bring it up. But it's, <laughs> it's the same kind of political philosophy there. Right. Um, of deflecting attention away from the product and onto the users because it's all about but there's, consumers there's some, having control. There is some right? degree of truth to that in that people that do become addicts are a bit like a broken clock to start with. I mean, lots of people um, gamble and don't become addicts. This is true, but if you look specifically, the case I know best, at slot machine technology, uh, those who gamble, slot machine addicts, you will find so many cases of people who never were addicted to anything else in their lives and had really, uh, you know, thriving kind of life. They had resources. Everything was sort of good. And right. then they found, you know, that this has never hit me like this before. This thing just sort of drew me in and caught me right. um, very quickly. And I mentioned quickly because that has been found over and over again in studies that have been replicated that race horses, cards, roulette, some of these other forms of gambling, more traditional forms of gambling, uh, if you compare those to slot machine addicts, uh, you can become addicted three times as fast to slot machines. There's something about the technology that accelerates what is happening in other domains. So it's not fundamentally different than other forms of gambling maybe, uh, but the way that the technology um, executes it and enables it, uh, accelerates it. And uh, you know the reason why, you could say, what does that boil down to? Yeah. So it's solitary. So think about a game of poker. Uh, you've got other people sitting around the table and I would, like if we were playing together, I'd have to wait and you could take your time and I would be sitting there frustrated. I'd look out the window of our undisclosed location. Um, <laughs> You know, I, there's social cues also for quitting, right? Because it's a social thing, you're making eye contact. Slot machines, it's just you and the screen, and everything else falls away, or you know, can fall away if you get deep enough into it. And, that's people, one and, and you call this the zone, right? Like, so. I call it the zone, and that's just one aspect, the solitary. Right. Um, another is continuous, so there's no waiting, there's no interruptions. Uh, you just go at your own pace. So it's, uh, it's also incredibly fast. On the newer machines, you can play unbelievably 1,200 hands or spins an hour. And you know, addiction researchers talk about, they have this phrase, event frequency. So you know, how, how many little rewards or spikes or addict, sort of addictive rewards can you get in a space of time? And you know, crack cocaine is high up there because you just you get high so quickly and then it's over and then you want it again. Right. So think about a lottery. A lottery is pretty slow, yeah. right? It could be once a month, it could be once a week. When you start talking about scratch tickets, you start looking like a slot machine because you can scratch off, go back to the end of the line, buy another scratch ticket. Right. And this is why scratch tickets are devastating certain communities like taxi cab drivers in Massachusetts, things like this. So that hmm. would be the kind of lottery equivalent of a slot machine. But a slot machine, no interruptions, no waiting. You don't even have to wait for the horses to come around, right? It's just 
almost immediate. And so that sense of immediacy of response, stimulus response. And the frequency of the feedback loops. Exactly. It, it really is a loop. That really does propel you quite quite rapidly compared to other forms of gambling into what gamblers call the zone. So you know, I try to use, I'm an anthropologist, so the native term for that state is not you know, addiction or dissociated state, or it's, it's the zone, and I think that captures quite well what it's like. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the zone, but are there any other aspects of the technology that lend, lead, makes slot machines so addictive? Well, for, to answer that, you could just look back at the, uh, the father of behaviorism, B.F. Skinner, and his work ask, that he it, did. It sounds yeah. quite similar, what you're talking about, to the sort of the intermittent rewards that he sort of accidentally gave the pigeons. Yeah, so Skinner boxes. <laughs> I, yeah. mean, it, it, I don't think it's a stretch at all, um, or any kind of sort of s scandalizing to say that a slot machine is a Skinner box. And I found this amazing old uh, educational video that was on TV. It was so hard to find, but I tracked that thing down because someone mentioned they had seen it. And in it, Skinner himself, he's, it's, it's in the 60s, and people were not yet familiar with the pigeons and the Skinner box. That was the wild new thing. Hmm. What they were familiar with was slot machines in Atlantic City and Vegas. Right. So to explain the Skinner box, you know, it's like I'm sitting here today explaining slot machines, but I point to the Skinner box, but he needed to explain the Skinner box. So he actually showed footage of Atlantic City, and throughout the interview, he kept putting his hand up and pulling a lever and saying, you know, we look at pigeons, but this carries over, you know, you can understand this in human terms because it's just what's <laughs> going on at a slot machine. So what's going on? You said intermittent rewards, and so that's really it. You, you never know how much you're getting, and you never know when. If you knew that the reward was coming on a regular schedule, you'd just go do your own thing. You'd come back at the appointed time, get your reward, go back to your life. But if you don't know when it's coming or how much it's going to be, you're going to ignore your water and just peck. One thing I find really interesting is in your sort of description of the difference between slot machines versus something like poker that's more social, the, the isolation um, of the game makes it more addictive. And when you look at social media, uh, the sort of the collective sense of it is, is sort of what drives it. Or is it that we are experiencing that information still a very personal setting on your phone? So when you say social media, so many things are, so let's be specific, which, which social media? Because are we talking about checking Facebook? Yeah, or? like or Instagram. Okay. So, so, so then it's, it's actually not social in the sense that you're interacting with it in a personal it's context. It's mediated, it's highly mediated right. sociality. And uh, yeah, if you're Facebook photo clicking and it's late at night and you kind of want to get into some sort of zone before bed and you just start, you know, why do you keep clicking when you really want to just stop? Why do you go to the next one and the next one and the next one? In a way, you are, you have had the experience in the past of finding some little jackpot or some little reward. So your phone is also a Skinner box. Oh, absolutely. These are Skinner boxes in our pockets, um, slot machines in our pockets, some people call them. Huh. Uh, what's the win, what's the win in Facebook? Is it when you find something that genuinely interests you? You hit upon a, fo a photo that you were not expecting right. that gives you some little spike or Schadenfreude or so. If who you knows were what. designing the algorithm uh, at Facebook, you, you actually would it would be better in a sense to not have it deliver great results all the time, but only occasionally. I guess so, yeah. I don't want to be in the position, you put me in the position of offering advice to Facebook, but Whoa. I mean, but I think it already, 
happens that way. I mean, my own, I don't do a lot of photo clicking. Uh, I do, you know, which is more of a horizontal left to right kind of thing. Hmm. I do the vertical scroll through my news feed at the end of the day. And it's a very similar thing. What what am I going to find? What, what picture will pop up? What post? What piece of news, you know, it's all in there is going to kind of give me that little that little spike. Right? This, this has sort of become very controversial around games. Um, I, I remember those, you probably remember as well, there was, uh, people played Candy Crush, but it was that terrible game called Flappy Bird for a while, mm-hmm. uh, which became so popular, I think it was netting the, the guy who designed it $50,000 a day at one point, but he had to take it offline because he was getting so many abusive like, death <laughs> threats you know, via a variety of media, be- just because it was the ultimate example of what they call a ludic loop. Yeah, yeah. I think I actually invented this term, ludic loop. <laughs> you know what? It's a great sign of success when someone else attributes it to somebody else that's actually your own invention. So but, uh, but, I mean, I, I, th- I believe I came up with that, and I came up with it to talk precisely about what do slot machines share with Facebook photo clicking, share uh-huh. with Flappy Bird and, uh, you know, Bejeweled and, and Candy Crush. And it is the sort of acceleration of these stimulus response loops. And it kind of just pulls you in. And it's very hard to find the the exit. It's, it, it's very hard to self-stop when these things are really right at, literally at your fingertips. You know, again, it isn't like a lottery where you have to do a lot to go and get it. It's just right there as long as you've got you know, battery power. It's funny because it's sort of become quite fashionable in companies when they're designing um, work, essentially, to talk about gamification. Mm-hmm. And it's sold as a positive idea that somehow work's going to be more fun because there's rewards and you know, systems of monitoring. Uh, it would be less perceived in a positive way if someone said we're kind of the casinofication of work. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and and then you'd come up with interesting examples like the casinoification of banking because gamification is something that's implemented a lot by banks. Well, like little game, reward points that's right, I, mean, I mean, games sound fun, but casinos sound a little bit more ominous. But is it the same thing in that you've got, got the tailorist vision of work where everything's becoming quantified and then you add like a layer of... You know, like you say, ludic loops to right. to work. Well, I, I kind of think they go together. I mean, if the quantified stuff has a ludic component. There's some little payoff for some people, especially like those the the, the so-called geeky quantified self set. Right. I do believe. Uh, finds a ludic kind of pleasure in numbers. Not everyone does, and they might need it. They might need to be engaged and pulled in by something else than looking at their own Excel spreadsheets, <laughs> right? So then designers try to find what that might be. When you're in that moment when you're caught in one of these loops, whether you're playing Flappy Bird or at a casino or somewhere else, what what is that state of the zone? So the way people described it to me and. Uh, after my book, the way the, these users of these games and the margins of Facebook, the bejeweled, etc., describe it to me is a losing of time, space, a sense of sociality, like who other people are there, and a sense of relating. Even relating to the game falls away, and it just becomes the, the clicking and the doing. So you really kind of merge. It starts sounding really zen-like and mystical. And as an anthropologist, that intrigued me because it sounded so much like trance states. And then I read the, uh, the back when I began this research, Flow was a very popular book by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And it's, it's sort of something that has become part of our vocabulary, right? What flow is. But if you actually look at his definition of flow, 
I think there's four C's, I've forgotten exactly what they are, but one of them is, you know, a sense of control and, you know, it doesn't exceed your ability to actually do it and you get feedback uh, and it produces this out of space, out of time kind of sense. Uh, it's exactly what the gamblers describe. So then I asked myself, they're describing this incredibly draining, depleting, like staying at the machine 48 hours and kind of running out of their last quarter and they're almost going into a diabetic coma and have <laughs> like spent all the money in their bank accounts. And, and they're wearing bladder control pants. <laughs> right. Some of them actually, yes. Uh, but Csikszentmihalyi, mean, meanwhile, is saying that all these elements... Uh, that are designed into the slot machines I found um, are, you know, in the service of creating this optimal human state. And which so, which, which is know, described as difference? sort of a sense of finding your ultimate purpose. And yeah, and it's it, like surgeons merge with their scalpel and they're in the zone during surgery. And dancers merge and, you know, you're climbing a mountain or um, jazz improvisation. And so I really had to say, you know, what if there isn't something that different about the psychophysiological state, what makes the difference? And here's where I depart with Csikszentmihalyi, who's very much a um, positive psychology, hmm. individual focus, that it's, a, that it's about your own internal motivation. Um, and I say, no, we got to look outside the person at the technology and the format, because there's something very different, just to use a, a running metaphor, between running in an open field uh, and sort of improvising where you're going to run. Um, you know, am I going to go up the hill? Am I going to go this way, that way? And running on a treadmill in a gym. So slot machine is a lot more like the treadmill um, because it's pushing you toward a certain destination and you can't really get off <laughs> or you'll yeah. fall. So, you know, if you, if you look at these things you interact with in the world, surgery, dancing, art, slot machine, they have different degrees of constraint and different intentions behind them. You know, the, the slot machine is incredibly carefully designed. Up to 300 or more people uh, feed into the design of any individual machine. And it goes through iteration after iteration of testing on the floor to, to sort of produce uh, you know, the, the end result. And they, they kind of hit upon a formula, not necessarily, they don't start with the blueprint and say, oh, psychological advisors, how should we do this? They just kind of come up with the Skinner box but, but through the market. It, uh, but it's also a shortcut to that deep meditative state, which you, you could achieve through other more noble pursuits. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but it's interesting, from, you know, from what you say, it makes me sort of think that that sense of being in flow or the zone is not necessarily something that has to be attached to a higher calling. It, no. it, it's almost like a byproduct um, of, of you know, us mentally shutting down the other functions that are going on, right. of deep focus, or which can be good the or designers bad. shutting them down too. Like then, right. then some ethics when there's when there's an object that's been designed to help you achieve something. Hmm. Um, you know, meditation, you could say meditation has been designed and you follow certain rules, but it really is your practice. Yeah. But when you're using a device that only gives you certain affordances, to use a technology term, or certain buttons or certain mathematical algorithms, you really are channeled, you know, back to that <laughs> kind of treadmill rather than an open field. Um, so then so ethics do you, do you, come into play. Do you play. think our iPhones will eventually come with addiction warnings? 
I think that's, uh, you know, that's in the offing, something like that. And I mean, some of it sounds silly, right? And I'm, I don't have. Well, a, not really. I, I mean, we, if you look at, I mean, if you look at Asia, I spent a lot of time in Japan, Korea, mm-hmm. and China, and I, I think because they got the digital revolution a little bit earlier than than the U.S., they also got the problems. Uh, so, I mean, some of the addiction, ca- technology addiction cases in Korea are, are, are insane. Yeah, I, sh- I didn't know that. I'll, I'll look into that because I'm fascinated with this question of policy and addiction and policy and technology because, you know, we so highly regulate certain things like the plastic coming from China that are in toys. Yeah. And we, to some degree, regulate medication. I mean, it's still sort of nefarious and I don't want to emulate the FDA. No, no, I love, I, love, I love that bit in the ads where they speak really fast. Like. Right. <laughs> they speed it up. Uh, so I don't want to emulate that model, but I do think that there we should strive to have something like an FDA for technology because this is not simply buying a car, right, and regulating is it going to explode or not. You know, this is an interaction. This is a relationship. This is something that sucks your time, yeah. not just money. And I think we haven't focused enough on time, the hours that people are being pulled away from other things into these. And we don't really understand its its true impacts on sort of the development... Dev, dev, <laughs> the development of kids, Yes, especially, that's what I was trying right? to say. I think anyone who's a parent listening to this, is, it's, it's probably the question in the back of the mind is, what is the consequence of me handing my iPad to my five-year-old? Right. And there are studies showing, you know, um, these, this isn't the area I've researched in, but apparently empathy diminishes. And the good news is you can get it back if you go to one of these, like, techno-free, cell phone-free zones. If you're a teenager, like, within a week, your empathy bounds back. But you're right. We, we, we just don't. We just don't know. And so it does seem to me that we don't have the vocabulary or the language in our policy yeah. models to accommodate, you know, because this, it's all about economists have this idea that we are consumers, we know our preferences. Homo economicus is the model of the person. We go out in the market and we choose the things we want and, the, and thereby reveal our preferences. This is a revealed preferences model of Homo economicus. And I would suggest that actually that's not how people are. And increasingly, behavioral economics is showing that we, we're a lot more like homo addictus. And this means that the products we interact with shift our preferences. That defines addiction. Economists have never known what to do with addiction. It throws a wrench in their idea of homo economicus. And I think it's more the model of our interactions with everything, our relationships. Like it's, it, it's terrifying to imagine a, an economy whose total growth model is based on the addiction of all its participants. <laughs> but also, the, you'd, you'd have to focus for it not to just self-destruct. You'd yeah. then have to have checks and balances. And other countries do that. I spoke to one designer. Um, it's maybe the, my favorite quote in the book because he was really, he was enlightened, not in the sense of his practice, but in understanding his role in all this. And he said, you know, um, guys, here in the United States, we're never going to, he was really dire about it and cynical. He said, we're never going to have, we're never going to regulate this stuff. They do it much better over in the UK. They have a safety net. They have some certain limits so that you don't self-destroy. Here, we mm. let people destroy themselves. And if you try to put a policy on me, <laughs> I'm going to drive a truck through it. I'm going to find the loophole. So it's ludic loops and policy loopholes, and it's just mixed up. There's, there's a new dimension on, around this, which of course is the subject of your next book, uh, because not only is there so much data which is driving algorithms, people now are collecting more data on themselves. Uh, they call them the quantified self movement. 
Uh, but I, I, you know, I was reading just today that smartwatches haven't really taken off to the extent that people hoped, but fitness trackers are going nuts. Yeah. So this is not just the domain of the OCD types, you know, who like measuring every aspect of their life. No, I Ordinary mean, I think people. what you see in the, so uh, funny for me is the fact that my new research project brings me back to Las Vegas every year to the same exact expo hall, which I became so familiar with after years of researching the slot machine industry that I knew where every outlet was to go charge my phone. Um, and this is the Consumer Electronics Show. Oh. And increasing floor space has been given over to fitness, health, personal tracking gadgets. Uh, and I remember going there. Digital Health Summit was the panel stream, and someone on stage pointed in the direction of the, the strip, and he said, these casinos with their slot machines, they really have it figured out. We need to figure out how to make health addictive. We check our cell phones 150 times a day. We need to check our steps and our calories. And so addiction, you know, right there I saw it was this hinge. And I said, God, I thought this was a new project. <laughs> and it is. There are differences, but there's also these, these overlaps. And the question is, if we're bringing this out of quantified self and hacker conventions to the so-called mass market, how do we gamify it? How do we um, make it sticky? Right. What um, what drives someone to obsessively collect data about themselves? Well, I think increasingly, um, just to speak as a cultural anthropologist, well, I was going to say for a moment, but I, I, I think I've been speaking the whole time as a <laughs> cultural anthropologist, but a more traditional one maybe, would be what are the cultural values at play here? Hmm. And the, the cultural values of being a good citizen in this day and age is to be responsible for yourself. This goes along with the political economy as well. You know, this also often gets tagged as the neoliberal, like outsourced to everything. You sure, they're the just individual. not coupon clippers. <laughs> no, but really, we're you know we're supposed to be responsible, recycling, focusing on our own energy. There's a sort of retreat from the idea. You know, think about it. Isn't it absurd that we're being asked to take our cell phones and load them? with apps uh, that will do things like go into a supermarket and you point your phone like it's a shield at the different aisles and it will scan things and tell you what's healthy to eat. Green, red, yellow, you know, symbols coming at you. Um, why not regulate the food industry? Like there's so much energy going into regulating our own little selves in our own little bubbles. Right. What are we, what are we not doing? So as an anthropologist, I can kind of stand back and see this as part of a cultural political movement that's putting increasing emphasis on individual responsibility. Huh as the thing that we're supposed to kind of live up to. So that's, that's part that would of it. That would explain America, but it wouldn't explain what's happening globally in Asia and everywhere else where it's almost tapping into this obsessive, new, new techno-obsessiveness. Right. I'd, I would wager that, it, that if you actually talk to people and interview them and get a flavor of how they're using these things, you're going to find subtle telling differences cross-culturally. Right. I mean, I'd, I'd wager a lot on that. And there's also this element of pleasure, right? And checking in and getting, it is like immediate feedback. You know, you walk some steps and then there's a thrill to kind of looking at how the number has jumped. Hmm. And it's also filling time. 
right? Feeling a little anxious and jumpy and bored. And so you're constantly consulting your But this one, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at these sort of mindfulness and meditation apps, <laughs> which, you know, the new, um, the new Apple Watch apparently has got a function that tells you when to breathe. Uh, and yes. uh, it, it makes me think there must be, it's quite an interesting difference between collecting data to optimize yourself and actually handing over control. Well, that's really what my, you've hit upon uh, what <laughs> my, technology. the arc of my book, right. uh, which is that as it moves into the mass market, you see an increasing focus on so-called passive tracking. Right. So instead of people being part of the loop, so this is an AI term, it, human in the loop. It becomes an autonomic response. It becomes automated, in an, yes. Yeah. And so the idea is the mass market does not first they tried to imitate it. They tried to say, everybody will be quantified self. Everybody gets turned on by looking at their own data. That will motivate people to change their behavior. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so then came the gamification and the trying to make it meaningful. And increasingly what you see is stuff that's that's tracking you in the background and only really notifying you when you need to do something different and maybe notifying you through buzzes and vibrations and taps on the wrist. Yeah. So and maybe eventually not, 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 not even that, you just get a, a bigger bill from your insurance uh, <laughs> once a month because <laughs> your premiums have gone up because you haven't been exercising. Right, or you haven't even, sometimes you just get lower premiums for checking, the tracking itself, right? The checking your That's account, right. going onto the website, this, yeah, yeah. this itself gets rewarded. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a, it's a really interesting moment to look at this stuff and this question of agency and control and... Um, you know, at the outer ends, you can say, yes, uh, someone in quantified self who meditates and has their own practice and maybe doesn't even look at their data so much. It's more about the practice of logging it. Because I've met so many people in quantified self who say, I don't look at the data, I don't do the analysis. It's the act of recording it. So that's like more of a, a Zen kind of attitude, right? Right. Um, to people who say, put a chip in my mouth, count my calories, I cannot be bothered to do the work. Just tell me if I'm going to get fat. Yeah, and like one example with the meditation things would be Think. I don't know if you've heard of yeah. this device. Yeah. So some meditation apps give you actually a lot of power. They just help you a little bit. It's like maybe a, a little assistant. And then there are those like Muse where you, you, you um, put it on your head and you can hear your own brain waves and you learn so that would be neurofeedback well, no, so it's, right? like, it's like the biofeedback devices that were so popular in the 70s right but that's still you're in the loop the human is in the loop because there is feedback right yeah. and, you, and, and these are training modules you do it in the morning and then you take it off and you bring that knowledge with you throughout the day and if you talk to people at Muse, that, that's what they're about. They're like very yogi-like there. And then you've got the think. And the think guy actually says the problem with all this other stuff, the Fitbits, et cetera, is it, it wants you to look at it like a dashboard. You have to consult it. You have to enter the information. People don't want to do that. We have technology. You just put it on your head and you choose, do you want energy or do you want to relax? And do whatever you want. I mean, I was in the I was in the testing for this, so I, I have firsthand experience. And I remember going, and they put this thing in my head, and I said, "Do you want me to go? You know, am I staying in this brightly lit room? Don't you want to like? Should I do any activities? Should I close my eyes?" And they're like, "Do whatever you want." And they were talking loudly around me. I read the New York Times. I walked down the hall. They didn't care what I was doing because it was doing 
it was acting on me without me. I wasn't in the loop. So, so is this really, do you think, the future of technology and the design of technology is, is actually to take away our agency? And I don't know if it's to take it away, but because that sounds like or is it it's more closer, wresting it from it's, us. It's easier it's to the, get into a zone in anything when, when you have less options put in front I, of you. I think it's back to what I said before about all these pressures to be a responsible self. I think it's relief. I think we're back to the slot machine gamblers. Yeah. I think that we just can't handle one more thing we have to track and do about ourselves. And we want to be relieved of the burden of being responsible. And this is like, you can be responsible, but something else is doing it for you. Well, Natasha, it's been great to have you on the show. <laughs> I am terrified I'm going to disconnect all my devices now. <laughs> uh, but it was great to meet you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.